From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I was in my early 20s and in Italy for the first time. In an outdoor restaurant, diners at a neighboring table were given a bowl of peaches for dessert. They halved, pitted and sliced them, dropped the fruit into glasses and added cold Moscato. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, you just heard from cookbook author Diana Henry reading from her latest book, How to Eat a Peach. I was so thrilled that we got to talk with Diana recently, uh, as her cookbooks are some of my personal favorites. And she's written nearly a dozen other books, too, including her groundbreaking first cookbook, Crazy Water Pickled Lemons, which highlighted the enchanting flavors of the Middle East, Mediterranean, and North Africa. And Diana's even more cookbook-obsessed than we are. In fact, I'd challenge any one of our listeners out there to prove that your home collection numbers more than Diana's. Diana is a poignant and beloved food writer. In fact, this is one of my favorite quotes from Diana. She says, I think about words as much as I think about flavors. We sat down with Diana at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. It's a pleasure. We're so glad to have you. And you're here with your 11th book, How to Eat a Peach, Menu Stories and Places. Um, it's a wonderful book. And we've just been commenting on how beautiful <laughs> the cover is because for folks who are listening at home and can't feel it, it feels like a peach. Fuzzy like a peach. Yes. And when they told me, they, when the production team told me they got this, what, what they actually said was, we've got this cover and it's like flock wallpaper. And I thought, Oh my God. And I thought, what have they done? What are they going to make me do? And, um, but when they gave it to me, actually, I, I burst into tears when they gave me the cover because it seemed the image was right, but also that the softness was kind of right for, there's a lot of memory in the book. So I thought it suited very well. Yeah. I like that. It, it does sort of feel like something you could cuddle up with and have some fond memories. Oh, somebody, with the somebody book itself. touches me on social media <laughs> to say that her little boy was taking it to bed. Oh, really? That's really sweet. It's <laughs> adorable. <laughs> A little cookbook collector. But I'd like it to be in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, Right. And so you have a a quite enviable cookbook collection yourself. You've written 11, but you own how many cookbooks? 4,000. 4,000. At the last kind, although I'm trying to get rid of some now. But it's because I started... I mean, I started buying them when I was very young and I'm uh-huh. in my early fifties now. So the first one is, was it when I was 12 years old? And, um, although my grandma had given me a few before then for gifts, but, and now I get sent a lot. Um, so there's always uh-huh. a towering pile at the front door to go to the charity shop as well as what's actually in the kitchen, but they are actually in every room in the house except for the bathroom and the loo downstairs <laughs> they are everywhere else and my children who are quite patient with things because if, if you work from home when you're a cook and a food writer your activity subsumes the whole house in a way sure it's like i'm scattered all over the kitchen table i have made a lot of washing up to be done and your books are everywhere as well right um so i think i have to pay attention to how everyone else feels about it and try and restrict them Yes. Somehow. And they become, they start, it starts to become a worry what you think you're going to do with them eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm kind of 80 and I'm not thinking, Oh, what's in that book now? And I just don't climb up to the top shelf and get them down anymore. What am I going to do with them? Yeah. So I'm already at that, I'm at that stage of life thinking, mm, maybe I just need to keep the core. I yeah. don't know. 
But you get very you, attached to them. You do, yeah. And it's wonderful to have such a comprehensive library like that too. Do you know what's really good? Sometimes if you if you spend kind of some time of an evening just looking at the spines and it's uh. you you remember the times when those were published and what the I mean, it's a great chronicler of food fashions and the things that came and went. Yeah. Because there's some books in there which were I moved to London in the middle of when we were going through Nouvelle Cuisine. So hexagonal plates and reduced field stock. And I look at those books and I can't actually kind of bear to throw them out, even though I would never cook like that now. Sure. Because you know the way that smells can remind you of your childhood? Right. Even pictures and cookbooks kind of like take me back. It's kind of that style mm-hmm. is of 1984 or whatever. Yeah. And um they're very, there's, they've been so much part of my life, really. Yeah. Well, I'm envious of your collection <laughs> of that <laughs> How size. How many do you have? Oh, nowhere near that. A, a couple hundred, maybe. But I will say a couple hundred is enough to make my wife sometimes say, this is too many. Uh, and we moved to a new apartment recently, and we picked this apartment specifically because they have a dining room with beautiful built-in bookshelves with glass doors, and it's already overflowing. Like, I have way too many for the You library. have to listen to her, because my first <laughs> marriage pretty much floundered on the books. Yes, I've read this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. There was just that thing of there being them being too much of um part of the home, yeah. I think. And when when my ex-husband said it's kind of you've got to think about getting rid of some of these it's them or me. It was like, <laughs> well that's a stupid question. <laughs> Cuz they're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to get back to your cookbook library in a minute Mm -hmm. uh, and talk more about your influences. But first, I want to talk a little bit about how to eat a peach. Mm -hmm. Um, So where did the concept of doing a book focused around menus come from? Is this something you've thought about for a while? I really love menus. Mm. I like making them up. I started to do that. I kept a notebook when I was a teenager from about the age of 16. And I used to create menus, that most of which I never cooked at all. I just like to consider... What works together? And if I have this, if this is the main course, what will I have after? What will I have before? Right. Will it be a kind of, will I get a salad in there or whatever? It's just something I've always done. One of the things I get asked a lot is whether, oh, you know, it's the weekend. I'm having people in for dinner. This is what I've got for main course. What will I do? They've never thought about the pudding at all. And they want Mm. something quick and easy. And they've never thought about any kind of starter appetizer. So I thought people need help with this. And funny enough, I was, I was interviewed by Christopher Kimball last uh-huh. week. Yeah. And he said, I don't know why you like menus. And I said, they're just kind of, I just like thinking about different flavors and textures and how you move on from one dish to the next. He said, I hate it. I said, you huh. don't like menus? He said, no, I just want one dish and to open the wine and that's it. <laughs> and I, it's kind of, cause you know, cooking is about, it's about kind of the movement from one thing to the other, the blending of flavors and, yeah. and intermingling of textures and that kind of thing. So I was quite shocked, but. I think I am a bit of a menu nerd, though. Yeah. I really particularly like them. But it happened after I went to France for the first time on an exchange with a girl my age when I was 15. And we went, I was staying in the Champagne area with her and her family. And they ate very simple food, but very good. But they had four courses at every meal. I mean, right. it wasn't the holidays, but even at lunchtime, they had crudite of some sort, or it could just have been radishes with butter and salt and baguettes. Right. And then roast chicken or a pork chop. And then they have a green salad, which was usually just one leaf, Clotilda. My counterpart was very kind of like strict about that. Uh-huh. And then a simple pudding, but there was always something, you know, there's always something sweet at the end. 
And I, I thought it was a nice way to do something, you know, that we have to do every day. We eat twice right. a day and then breakfast as well, which is not going to be multiple courses. But I thought it was kind of honoring the meal and time to stop and kind of like do something different. And I just thought it was a, like incredibly civilized and it made very simple food very nice. Yeah. And I think someone might pick up this book and see that you've put together these collections of menus and think that you're an entertainer. And you say you're not really an entertainer. You um, say you don't describe yourself that way. No, because I did. I did. A, I needed, did an interview with the New Yorker, and when they wrote the piece, kind of like they, it sounded like I was always, you know, lounging in silk pajamas and masturbating fruit and having loads <laughs> of people around. Yeah. And um, I'm quite a selfish cook, and it doesn't make me sound like a nice person. But basically, I like the process of cooking. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd like to cook this, and then I think. Who would like to eat this? So I don't really do it the other way around. Yeah. I don't really think, oh, I'm going to see my friends Bruce and all of them. What would they like to eat? It's just kind of, I would like to cook this. Who do I think would like it? Right. Which is kind of like not the usual way. Yeah, it's not the usual way. And it's very interesting because then I think in hindsight, when you reflect back, I mean, obviously your book is just full of really evocative personal stories Mm. that are centered around these menus. Mm. So it's interesting to me that you think about the food first and the company and the people later. But then thinking back many years later to a specific meal, it's the people in the company that create sort of the long lasting memory with the menu tied in. Yeah, the context in which you had it. I didn't intend this book to be the way it turned out, to be honest. Okay. Um, I thought it was going to be quite a practical book. And I'd look at some of the guidelines rather than rules, because that's a bit rigid, about what goes with what and how to have people over to eat. And then when I put started to put the menus together and listed all of them, they were all about place, nearly all about place. And I was quite surprised. And I didn't intend it to be this kind of like world tour or anything, but it ended up being about places that had been important to me or where I'd really kind of fallen in love with the country via the food. But I come from Northern Ireland and a very kind of small town there. And we didn't travel because you had to go to London to get anywhere else. So there were six of us and it was, it was so expensive to kind of fly to London and then fly off anywhere else. Right. So we used to go to Dublin for holidays. That's where we went. So we went to the south of Ireland. And when we were there, we used to go to the airport to watch planes taking off to go to other places. Uh-huh. So just you knew how the places were there, right. but you were just longing to get to them. Sure. And then somebody who's done a review of this recently said, this book is heavy with longing. And I think mm. it's true. I think that kind of thing of wanting to go abroad, wanting to go to other places, wanting to do things that were kind of glamorous was was always wrong. But, you know, I was just a small town girl in Northern Ireland and nothing glamorous. And I think my head was always somewhere else, really. And for me, it's partly I've traveled through fiction, but also through cooking. And I think that's just something I've always done and was not really particularly aware that that's what I was doing in a way. Yeah, I love that description. I think I do feel that longing, that desire to, there's a menu around New York City, there's a menu around San Francisco. You can truly transport yourself through these menus and these But you those know, places, and it together. sounds ridiculous, because as I say, I grew up in small town Northern Ireland, they have been tremendously important to me yeah. as a kind of place to reach for. I mean, my mum, I don't know if you've read the New York essay, but she used to read me this 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 storybook called Rosa Tudor, right? Yes, who lived in a brownstone, Mm -hmm. and I loved Rosa so much because she couldn't join the library; she was too little, and I was too little at that time as well. So we're both waiting to do this, and then in the story, Rosa does join the library. I thought, so I will as well. But I just I wanted to be with her, sitting you know on the stairs of her brownstone and chatting to her. And it's a very Irish thing to look. 
towards um, America, I think. And we had, you know, Gershwin music and uh, in the house. So, all, I mean, I had a great fantasy about it. And when I go to New York still, I see like at least a third of it through those eyes still, like yeah. very childlike. And San Francisco, that was to do with not so much the place, but what it stood for when I was becoming a cook. Um, I discovered... Alice Waters, Shape and East Menu Cookbook, when mm-hmm. I was about 23, and I had just moved to London to right. go to journalism school. And as I say, we were in the middle at that time of Nouvelle Cuisine, so everything was very finicky and, and, and very, very chef And I read the first menu in that book, and it had such clarity. I mean, it was a shock. And I, I could feel that a shiver went down my spine. It was like, I haven't seen food like this before. Yeah. Very colorful, very clear. And you could taste it. You could almost even smell it because you knew there was a lot of griddling. So you could smell the smokiness as you stood there and read the menus. And I thought, this is the kind of food I really like. Yeah. And that was after having been to France and everything. There was something about having been to France or Italy and then putting a layer of California on top of that. And it was hard. I still find it hard to say what that is apart from, you know, local and seasonal, but there was a kind of Californian magic and sort of sinus and simplicity. Yeah. And I and I really liked that, and I really responded to it. And I've done lots of kind of you know cooking from Mexico and cooking from different countries over the years. But when I look at what is my style, I come back to the Chez Panisse menu cookbook. I wouldn't even lend that book to anyone, yeah, because it it's the book that kind of started the thing in me. I think, right, and it's never really changed. But I do go back to it because it is a kind of lodestar. Yeah. In my life, I think. But I didn't get that till I was 30. I came to San Francisco for the first time when I was 30. Yeah. So I waited a long time for that visit. <laughs> yeah. And you, uh, you've written about the Chez Panisse menu cookbook often as one of your biggest mm. influences. Um, and you've written that one part of what really appealed to you about their philosophy and about California cooking is, um, you mentioned locality and seasonality, but also the care that they took. And you know, even the typeface of the menus yes. in the Chez Panisse. She cookbook. really, I, I interviewed Alice last year when she did her autobiography and I was talking to her about that. And I kind of knew this anyway. And I've always thought that for life to be lived enjoyably, you must kind of like care about the small things. You must get pleasure from the very ordinary things in life, like a bowl of cherries or, you know, right. the, 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 the rain on your milk bottle on your doorstep. And when I talked to her and read the book, that became even clearer that she she does, and I think it's a I think it's a California thing with California cooks. You care about the quality of everything you deal with. She's obsessed with candles. When I talked to her, I'd never dis- I'd never interviewed anyone who used the word love so much. Oh, I love candles. Oh, I love peaches. Oh, I love hats. And um, anyway, and it can sound slightly fey, but I think she means it. And yeah. I think it's about really noticing the kind of small details of life that aren't expensive, right? But that make a difference. I think that, yeah, caring about every element and getting a pleasure out of that care is an important thing in cooking and in having a home and in life. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great piece of advice. Are there other cookbooks that influenced you as you were working on this book in particular? I know, I think I've seen you mention about a whale, a walrus. Oh, yeah. As another menu cookbook. Renny Erickson, that's, uh-huh. that is a beautiful book. It is. Yes. And, um, it's not so much because there are menus in it. I just, the design of that book is lovely. Yeah. And you can tell, which is what you can't tell from a lot of cookbooks because so much are produced and so much are kind of like produced quickly. Um, it's a real reflection of her. Very few cookbooks really, really reflect their authors, I think. And that is kind of when I tried 
to do each one. The, you want it to be different than the last one, but you want it to be very much you. Right. And <clears throat> I've worked with Miranda Harvey, who's my designer, on all of my cookbooks, every single one. So we have a very long working relationship now. Mm. And she kind of knows what is, well, I always call them our books. It's kind of like, is this us, Miranda? Is this <laughs> not us? Right. And they have to be different, but they there's a connection between them all. Because everybody's got a kind of style and taste, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if you looked at your kind of like the fiction on my shelves as well, you could kind of like say, yeah, that I can imagine what that person would be like. And I think your cooking and the food, the books that you produce is, is something that comes just from you as well. But Rennie's book is really like that. Yeah. The Shea Penny's book is very like that yeah. as well. They're very much from individuals and they speak a lot about themselves. Right. What do you think makes a great cookbook? How long have we got? <laughs> as long th- as you need. I think that thing of trying to make it something that's very individual to you is the main thing. Uh-huh. I mean, I get sent a lot of cookbooks and I open, I don't know, good 50% of them and they're dead on the page. Hmm. Because what happens is, well, the photography's booked, cook does all the recipes. Right. They don't very often meet the photographer really before they do the Mm. photographing and it's quite often done in a condensed uh, time. So we'll do seven or 10 days. Right. The norm is to have a stylist appointed to you who will get the props, but they've been given a brief by the editor. They'll not necessarily have talked to the author at all. And I don't, I don't, I just don't think that's the way to do it. You're, you're producing a cookbook, but it's kind of, it's not connected to its source. And I don't understand that. Hmm. And I think it's probably a question of time. But I mean, I, I quite, I'd quite like to commission books and look after some myself because sometimes I see new writers and I, I know what their writing's like and I see their kind of style of cooking and I think they've really got something. Yeah. And then the book comes out and it's like, what happened to, what happened to that person's work in, in the translating of them onto the page? They're gone. They're not there at all. Right. But I think it's partly because the dots aren't joined up. I think it really needs a team together to talk about how to do things and, they must understand each other and they must certainly understand what the author's vision is. Every cookbook needs to have its own world. And I think How to Eat a Peach definitely does have its own world. And they want to pick that up. Sometimes it's just a place that they want to be. And I do that with books. I go into, like I go into the, the Wallace and the Carpenter at Rennie's book and it's uh-huh. like, oh, I just, you know, I'm in Seattle and this is lovely. Right. And it's a place that you are and you feel the sea and you kind of think that there's another, there's another bottle of kind of chilled rosé and it's, it's almost like a little kind of holiday, even though you've just been looking at a cookbook. I mean, after the first two days cooking, first two days photography, sorry, on this book, Miranda, the designer, designer and I looked at it and it was too austere. And I worried about that because I thought there'd be a real Californian influence on this book. So it could be a little bit precious. Yeah. And we looked at it and we said, Oh my God, it's like the book equivalent of the Californian boutique hotel. We have to, it needs to be raw. Yeah. We can't, it can't all be like this because that's just, Oh, look at me in my perfect life. And I don't have one of those. So it needed to be made nearer to what I do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you've talked, I've heard you talk before about you originally didn't buy a lot of cookbooks with photos. Um, you, you know a lot about me. <laughs> I've done my research. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> um, no, I was, I, yeah, I was quite snooty. I was a bit yeah. of an intellectual snob about cookbooks because most of the cookbooks I had early on, they were by people like Jane Grigson yeah. or they were by Claudia Roden. Right. And I mean, the Shape and His Menu Cookbook doesn't have any pictures. Right. And basically, I just wanted the writing and the stories. But then I was commissioned by 
and the, and it was kind of the weirdest thing how I did my first book. Um, I had ghostwritten for a, a quite famous chef in the UK. I'd ghostwritten one of his books. And then this publisher phoned up and said, could they have a meeting? And I thought they just wanted to see me to see if I would do um, more ghostwriting, really. And um, at the end, of the, at the end of this kind of like chat, I said, "Oh, there's a book I'd like to do." Almost like, "Miss, please, can I put my hand up and ask for this?" And um, and she said, "What?" And I said, "Well, I've had this, I've had this book in my head called Crazy Water Pickle Lemons, and it's about the kind of ingredients in the dishes that I fantasized about as being exotic when I was growing up mm-hmm. in kind of grey Northern Ireland. Right. So it was Middle Eastern, a lot of Middle Eastern stuff. I was." I was crazy for that. Yeah. And, um, and it's about the kind of, the way those kind of things enchanting, like take a pomegranate. Sure. I mean, I'd never seen one. So a pomegranate could have been a unicorn as far <laughs> as I was concerned. Did these things exist? I didn't know, <laughs> but I had read about them and the little kind of jewel like seeds. I mean, they're everywhere now. I'm sick to death right. of them, <laughs> but I thought about those kind of ingredients. And then when I started to cook more, when I started to travel more, things like I went to Catalonia and where they make aioli with quince, with quince puree. I mean, a garlic mayonnaise made with fruit. And that just seemed, why would anybody think this up? Right. Um, so it was dishes like that that you thought might not work or they were kind of, they had very odd components or they had a story behind them. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to go into this book, Crazy Water Pickled Lemons. And I knew of the dish crazy water, it just had a nice, it just had a nice name. Yeah. Um, that was cooked on the Amalfi Coast. And I had just finished reading Nagib Mahfouz's Palace Walk trilogy. And at the beginning of the first one of those, there's a breakfast where they have, um, full madame and they have preserved lemons and they have eggs and feta and all the rest of it. And I thought, I want to have some element of that in this book. I don't know what these pickled lemons are. I can't imagine what they taste like, but they sound extraordinary to me. So it just became this world that I was kind of inhabiting in my imagination was the world of crazy water pickled lemons. Yeah. Which was a wonderful cookbook, your first cookbook. I loved writing that. Yeah. Although it's it's kind of funny when you look back at it years later, you feel a little bit embarrassed. Mm -hmm. It's so hard on sleeve. It's so earnest. Yeah. Well, you got a lot of credit after writing that book for introducing Mediterranean, Middle Eastern flavors um, sort of before their time, at least in, in US a bit, standards. A bit too early, actually, because really? I did that. Yeah, because then the whole Middle Eastern thing has only really taken off in the UK in the last seven years, maybe. Okay. And yeah. it's to do with Yotam, of course, uh-huh, Yotam right. and and other people who've kind of really championed it. But when I first wrote about it, I thought, oh, everybody will love this. Everybody will start to cook this now. Right. But it was a long time before that happened. Yeah. And when I wrote Roast Fig Sugar Snow, mm-hmm. a lot of that was about food in snowy places. So there was a lot of, um, there's quite a lot of American stuff in it, but Scandinavian stuff. Cause I thought, oh, the next place I'll go to is Scandinavia. <laughs> yes, a decade later. So I'm always just a little bit too ahead of my time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But do you follow trends then? Do you think in that way? Like, no, it's no? completely and utterly and um, by accident. Yeah. Um, cause when I did the preserving book, I, I just, that came along because I just thought, you know, I've always done preserving, but I don't know enough about it. And I'm not really confident enough about it. So I'm going to write this book while I test these recipes and go on this kind of journey. Right. And then I'll make a book out of it at the same time. And because I was a bit timid, I thought, I bet other people are timid like me, but they'd really like to do it. And then everybody started fermenting and pickling and blah, blah, blah about two right. years later. So I was kind of a bit ahead of that as well. But the, genuinely, I write books because I'm really interested in either I think it's helpful in some way or I've kind of explored something so much I want to write about it but it's just it's just chance 
Yeah. Really. I mean, I watch trends, but I also kind of despise them because it's, oh, here we go. <laughs> I mean, because they get hyped and then they kind of like, and then they fall out of fashion. And it's always, it's always real petty when they kind of go out of fashion. I think it's like, it's not going to be kimchi's fault if nobody cares about it in two years time. <laughs> it's kind of, it's because everybody will be just sick to death of it. Yeah. Hearing about it. Yeah. But that's not, that's kind of like, it's not the fault of, you know, that cuisine. So that can be sad, I think, when it's yeah. spear again. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Diana Henry. Now, we're talking today with Diana about How to Eat a Peach. It's her latest cookbook, and it's full of gripping autobiographical narrative that she's centered around menus. Of course, there's the famous How to Eat a Peach menu, inspired by a trip Diana took to Italy, and she presents us with a recipe for white peaches in chilled Moscato. Now, some of my other favorite menus are the I Can Never Resist Pumpkins, an autumn meal. It's this wonderful fall meal with autumn vegetables served with a hazelnut, roast bell pepper, and anchovy relish. Uh, Diana pairs it with a pumpkin soup with sage butter, some Tuscan grape bread and Italian cheeses, and closes the meal uh, with a coffee topped with hot chocolate and whipped cream. Yum. There's also one of my other favorite menus, Take Me Back to Istanbul, where she starts with a roasted split eggplant with goat cheese, followed with sautéed squid with chili, dill, and tahini dressing, some lamb kofta, sweet pickled cherries, and closes with a Turkish coffee ice cream. These menus really highlight how Diana has been a leading figure in shaping how people across the globe eat. Now, we could geek out over cookbooks all day with Diana, and we nearly did the evening that she joined us in our recording space at the Civic Kitchen. We perused through the Civic Kitchen's incredible cookbook library, poring over favorite volumes like we were lifelong friends. Every cookbook Diana picked up had a story, and often a menu, that came to mind instantly. If there were an award for harnessing the power of cookbooks to evoke deep and vivid memories, Diana's latest, How to Eat a Peach, would definitely be a top contender. Now, before we jump back in, I want to remind you that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen. It's the recreational cooking school offering hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. Now, don't miss the Civic Kitchen's upcoming classes. There's some great topics, like Summer Izakaya with the Japanese Pantry or the highly popular Donuts 101. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Diana Henry. In addition to being a journalist, I think you're just also a lover of literature yes. and a lover of words. And I've, I've read that you've written that you think about words as much as flavors. And I yes. love how you sort of play with some descriptions of things like in, in how to eat a peach, you have mango cheeks, which sort of look like you've, you know, removed the cheek from the mango, right? Yeah. And, and placed it, um, I think in a, a sort of syrup. Is that yes, right? Yes. There's a, a lemongrass and Okay. Um, and then the introduction to the October menu, I really loved too. You talk about how much you love October and cooking in the fall and even the word October starting with the letter O just yeah. feels comforting and like it's giving you a big hug. You're kind of held. Yeah. How do you approach like bringing that sort of literary voice into your cookbook writing specifically? I don't really think about it. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of like, and some, I sometimes think, cause sometimes my weekly column is like that and sometimes it's not. So things will just come usually in writing how to eat a peach. My mind was more open for stuff that was more lyrical to come in. And also because you had chosen, I mean, I wanted a menu which represented October. My birthday's in October as right. well. 
And it is a t- it is a month that I really love. And when I was growing up in Northern Ireland, it was just one of the loveliest months. Yeah. So, I mean, I've never really quite got over that someone gives me the space to do this and then they pay for it to be published. <laughs> because it it's is blessing. really lovely. Well, you write this thing and you hope that other people will kind of like also get why October is so great. Yeah. Um, but the process of writing it, it's hard, but it is also kind of wonderful to me. It's like I've described it before as being underwater. It's like you go down to this place. My children, when I'm in that kind of like writing mode, my children come along and they go, mommy, mommy, mommy. And they clap their hands and everything. And I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm just not there. Yeah. So I've gone down into this kind of deep place where you're thinking about smells and texture and the color of things and how things make you feel and how you convey that. And I, I love doing that kind of writing. There's one other, so the October chapter really caught me and I had to stop and read it aloud I'm to my wife. I'm glad you like that because nobody, nobody has picked up on that. Oh, really? I, it was so beautifully written and it, it really encapsulated how I feel about the fall. The fall is my favorite season. Yeah. I love the fall. Um, I had to stop and read that part to my wife. And I also had to stop and read her the part um, in, in front of the menu on corn. Um, where you talk about like fantasizing about coming to the American Midwest and lying in a cornfield and seeing these tall corn cobs. And I just have to tell you, I grew up on a cornfield with a cornfield in my backyard in Iowa, the heartland. So if you ever want me to take you (laughs) to a cornfield. Did you lie in the fields? I don't really remember lying in the fields, but we used to play in them as kids and run through them. I know. I'm going to have to do that next time. (laughs) Oh, corn just means America to me. And I'm full of, you probably picked it up from the book. There's lots of countries I'd like, but I have ridiculous romantic fantasies about the States. Always have done since I was kind of like little. And, um, and when people tell me things like, you know, you can hear the corn grow. I went, I went onto, um, the internet because you know, they've recorded it scientists right. and then they speeded it up. Right. You can hear it. You can kind of sort of hear it squeaking. Yeah. And crackle a little. I know. Yeah. And I love New England. I like New England a lot as well. Cause, and you go, if you're there in the fall and you know, the kind of like the farm stands at the beginning, they're kind of like, they're edging the corn off and they're bringing the pumpkins in. So it's a kind of battle between who's like going to be dominant there. Right. Um, well, <laughs> if you can't tell, Simple is probably my favorite book of yours. You've based got on, a lot of little sticky notes Yeah, in all my post-it notes. Um, and one thing you have a reputation for is combining unique flavors. One of the recipes I've made several times from here is the one on the cover, the sausage with the mustard glaze and this blackberry slaw That's a, on the a nice slaw. It's so interesting. I never would have thought to put blackberries in there and I loved it. Um, also, the Mumbai toasties are one of my like go tos. But that's that's simple. not my invention. That's a that's kind of Bobby no, but a wonderful foods. recipe. Yeah, no, it's kind of good. I think I think sometimes well, cookbook authors are curators. Um, yeah, and it's funny because I think in the states you have more of an emphasis when it comes to books on originality. Um, I can care less about that. I mean, I travel around everywhere and some, and I see a kind of dish in Brittany or wherever and I think that's really good. Right. So either I'll talk to the chef or if it's a traditional recipe, I'll find it out somewhere or I'll go home. I mean, quite often I kind of replicate things that I've had as best I can that I've had somewhere else or sure. maybe put something in or leave something out. But I think if you look at writers like I really admire, like Jane Gregson. And like Claudia Roden, they collected recipes. I mean, Claudia from particular cultures, but Jane, just wherever she went. And right. I still do that. And before I was a food writer, um, I would come back from trips and I'd fill these. I mean, I, I was in California for the first time on my honeymoon when I was 30 and I had a notebook. And then the way back, it was just full 
of dish ideas. And I wasn't a food writer. I was just going to make them at home. Right. But it was, you would go places and you'd see things. You'd go, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, or those things work together, but I don't think it should have that element. We should do something different with it. And it's, I find it very hard not to think like that. Yeah. I think about flavor a lot. And I think, yeah, I think I'm a collector. I think I'm a collector of stuff as well as an originator. And I think that's fine. Well, before we close, um, it's rare that we have someone here with 4,000 plus cookbooks in your collection. So I just want to hear from you. What are you reading now? What are, what's on your horizon? What cookbooks or flavors or things are interesting to you today? It's really funny. And I'm not just saying this because I've just spent the morning with them. I'm really looking forward to Nick Sharma's book coming out. Yes. Um, in October. Uh huh. Because I've seen that I've seen the proofs because I gave him some cover blurb, and um, it's not very often that I get a book and I think, oh my god, I would never have put that with that. Yeah. How did he get that idea? Um, so other people who are kind of real conjurers of flavor, who come from a background different from my own, I'm very excited to see what they do. And how about for you then? I think you have a couple books in the pipeline. I think you have one called North. I've been working on that for like 17 years on and off because I had to fit in the traveling with the children. Right. So that was because, you know, we're all so Mediterraneanized up and we've been, it makes sense here. It doesn't make sense in Northern Ireland to be always looking to, to, you know, aubergines and, and red peppers. Right. So I kind of thought, why don't we care about what's right in front of us? Because we've really diminished that. Sure. Um, And I started traveling to Scandinavia and they basically were cooking pizza and pasta. And I thought nobody will, there'll be nobody left who can remember how to cure a herring or who wants to eat one in another kind of like 20 years time. Right. And then I started the traveling and then Randy Rudzeffi came along and he thought kind of like similarly, we should right. be paying attention to this. <laughs> and, and I've been very interested to see the effect that that's had, but it's been good because if you do, if you're looking at a region over a long period of time, you can see those kind of movements happen and the effect of them. And then kind of like they go down the other side, as it were, of the slope, um, how much it lasts or doesn't last. But I'll probably do another one before then. I kind yeah. of, there's, sometimes I've been very, books which I think are very helpful and they're there for people like me. even though i'm a food writer i've still got to get supper on the table on a wednesday night for two picky children right Uh, and sometimes they're about like they're very very work heavy and kind of you know i go and do a lot of traveling and curate and collect a lot of of dishes yeah well thank you so much for joining us we really appreciated this it's been a real pleasure And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, to hear Diana Henry reading an excerpt from How to Eat a Peach, as well as a recipe for cherries in red wine with cardamom cream and rose pistachio shortbread. It's one of my favorites from her latest book. You can also enter our cookbook giveaway to win a signed copy of How to Eat a Peach. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with stories behind the cookbooks you love.